Hello. Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? Welcome to the Curious Fox Podcast. For those challenging the status quo in love, sex, and relationships, my name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla. And today we are going to delve into emotion focused couples therapy with the always incredible Thomas Whitfield. Thomas is a researcher, therapist, and content creator who specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy and sexual health. His research has been published in a number of international scientific peer reviewed journals, and he has been funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. He has a YouTube channel dedicated to sexual education called Shit They Won't Tell You on Sex Ed and is the sex and relationship advice columnist behind Get Out Magazine's Thomas Talks About. You can find him on his podcast, The Obsessibles, where he and co-host Justin Perez introduce each other to and examine their varying obsessions. Thomas also spoke on The Curious Foxes Considered This Stage. He shared his vulnerable, humorous, and surprising experience with contracting an incurable STI and found it to give him clarity. You can find this talk on our Patreon. I really encourage you to check it out. He also joined us in episode 33 to share wisdom on how to find the right therapist, covering a myriad of popular and some experimental therapy modalities. For today's conversation, we talked to him about how to improve the way we argue and communicate based on the strategies used within emotion-focused couples therapy. Emotion-focused couples therapy, EFT for short, because it is a mouthful, is a type of short-term therapy that is used to improve attachment and bonding in adult relationships. This approach to couples therapy was developed by Drs. Hugh Johnson and Les Greenberg in the 80s and is rooted in the research on love as an attachment bond. It's essentially trying to solve for the hurt of our childhood where our first love interests our primary caregivers, fail to get attuned to our emotional states, thus causing us to connect love with not being seen, not being heard, or not feeling safe. It's designed to break our unhealthy coping strategies around love and relationships, often settled during this time. I don't want to get into the technicalities of it all, but in this modality, there are three stages and nine to ten steps, depending on your understanding of it. And of course, it's not linear. Because humans are rarely linear. Just to give you the overview, the three main stages are Stage 1, de-escalating the negative cycles Stage 2, changing interactional patterns and creating engagement And Stage 3, consolidating and integrating During our conversation with Thomas, he shared examples of EFT in action And at the end of the episode, we provide some tips around how you can incorporate these techniques starting today To improve your communication and how you argue Enjoy the interview. So often when couples get in arguments, they get stuck in the details. They get stuck in the weeds. They they yell and scream because you didn't do the dishes or you didn't make the bed or you were late coming to this thing or that thing. And what doesn't get talked about is the emotion that comes up because all that really gets expressed is the anger. So emotionally focused couples therapy teaches people to start communicating with the emotion that they're feeling, the primary emotion that they're feeling, as opposed to the secondary emotion, which is usually some sort of defense. So it's really kind of teaching couples, no matter how long they've been together, how to communicate more effectively. I'm sitting in that because as you're describing that, I was like, yes, that feels like 80% of my arguments where, first of all, it's never about the dishes, certainly, but you're absolutely right that that first, the first wave is the anger, the disappointment, all the things that you're emoting out, but really what's behind that is the vulnerability, the hurt, the not having felt seen, the not having felt appreciated, and that eventually will come out, and you're to your point, I wish that I could like save myself that first hour (laughs) of that, of that conflict and just say, Hey, 
when I did the dishes there and you didn't seem to notice, I felt really unappreciated. And like that felt, you know, whatever. I wish I could just jump to that piece. Yes. And so why do you think, because that would be easier. And, and this probably seems obvious as to why we're not vulnerable. But in your work with couples, what has been the barrier of getting to that piece? Like, why do we spend so much time in the angry place? Because I think it feels better. It feels better mm-hmm. to feel angry than it does mm-hmm. to be vulnerable. When you are vulnerable, you could be hurt. When you are angry, you're filled with like a rush of adrenaline. You feel powerful. You feel justified. It's more difficult to look at someone and be like, hey, that hurt my feelings than fuck you. It's a defense. Mm -hmm. And if you are already someone who maybe doesn't feel comfortable being vulnerable, then you are going to feel even less less safe being vulnerable in a relationship. Because there's something mm-hmm. on the line there that you think you could you could lose. And people often associate vulnerability with weakness. Mm-hmm. So if I tell you that something you did hurt my feelings, I'm going to look weak. I don't want you to think I'm weak because then you won't love me. So I'm going to yell and scream at you to show you just how strong I am. Wow. And it just ends yes. up making people disconnect and push away and push away. So is the objective of the emotion focused couples therapy about getting people to get in touch with a vulnerability is it is that kind of how how it works in part yes the way that it's sort of described by sue johnson which is one of the the creators is as a couple engages in a dance or a pattern and no matter what sort of argument they have or disagreement they have the same sort of pattern gets activated so sort of the goal is helping the couple to see that pattern make adjustments to that pattern and get comfortable with the new pattern. So part of the way that you try to approach it with couples is saying like, it's it's you and me, the two people in the relationship against this pattern that we do. So because often people come into couples therapy thinking it's me against this person. It's the two people in the relationship or three people or whatever against each other. And emotion-focused couples therapy tries to change that so that it's like, it's no, you people that are in the relationship against this pattern, because this pattern that you're engaging in is not helping either of you to connect with each other more. So we need to find a way to change this pattern. So I I think one of the really great things about emotion-focused couples therapy is that it's never about what one person has done or the other person has done. And there are people that obviously come to therapy with with infidelities, and that may be very easy to look on the face of it and be like, oh, you did something wrong and you need to pay for it. But what this form of therapy actually does is it looks at the pattern and what goes on when that thing is discussed, what, what the pattern was before that led to that infidelity happening, and then you focus on changing the pattern. So it's really about coming up with a new dance that works for both of you which means that you both have to be able to look at your own shit, call yourself out on your own shit, and at some point feel comfortable telling the other person when they have stepped in their own shit. Mm -hmm. But it, it really tries to focus on, I'm pointing this out to you because we're working on this together, not you did something wrong and you need to change. And I think that that is one of the things that people come into a lot with couples therapy or why people try to avoid couples therapy is because they think that it's going to be something where it's just pointing a finger, where it's a punishment, where it's being told like you did this thing and you did it wrong and now you have to make up for it. And this is really, this technique avoids that. I love that. And I love that you use dance as an analogy of it's like the couple's doing a dance that's not working for them. So instead of keep doing a, a horrible dance, change the dance, learn something different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And there's some piece of yourself maybe that hasn't been healed or hasn't been seen that you're carrying with you from relationship to relationship. And so I think the identification of that pattern seems so important. I love that you brought that up. I think in those moments when people do notice those things and they're like, they recognize it. I think it, there's like, there's paradigm shifts that happen, which I think are so strong and so important for, for, for the couples. I have a question about, like, we know this kind of therapy works for all genders, same-sex couples or opposite-sex couples. I'm curious if you think that this would work for people who are in atypical relationships. So non-monogamous people, people in um, uh, triads or open. Do you think this kind of approach works for different structures, relationship structures? 
Yeah, I absolutely do because I mean so much of this is about is about boundaries and expectations and and sharing your emotions with each other and sharing your authentic emotion, your authentic thoughts. And I think that that really can I mean that covers all of all of those places. I think that, you know, being in a monogamous relationship, an open relationship, uh whatever, I think that you know, those things even call for more honesty with emotions and more honesty with thoughts. And the work that you do in this type of therapy doesn't have to just stay in the relationship. Like these are tools that you sort of learn how to use that you can use outside of the relationship too. Anytime that you're sort of able to express a more primary emotion is going to lead to more connection with the people around you and the world in general, which I think is what what people crave the vast majority of the time. Yeah. I mean, I think the emotional focus part of it is about the individual anyway. And I think any kind of therapy that supports the person to become more articulate about their emotional state, whether then that shows up in a relationship with a romantic relationship, a parental relationship, or a familial relationship, I think that, that the piece of it that is about you getting in touch with your emotions and being able to recognize your own patterns and take responsibility for them and communicate around them, I think that's just a core individual skill Anyway, so I think I imagine that even though the therapy construct seems to be couples-based, I think the skills and the tools you get out of it just applies across all relationships of any structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you talked about communicating with emotion instead of facts. You talked about working towards overcoming infidelity. Two of the things that you mentioned beforehand in preparation for this conversation was digging into things like conflict styles and the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about those two things. Yeah. um, So the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse, I love talking about with my patients. And whenever I say it, their eyes always light up because they're like, what is this? And it's work that is done by John Gottman, whom is a, a couples therapist and, and researchers published a lot of his findings. So the, the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse are these patterns that he noticed in his work that couples start to engage in when they argue. So one of the first things you want to notice is that in a relationship, you are going to argue. Arguing is going to happen. That does not mean that you are going to be punching each other in the face, but like having disagreements is normal. It happens. And really, there are two reasons that people don't argue. One of them is that either they really get along with everything in the entire world and they're totally on the same page all the time, or the other one is they're just avoiding. So the four horsemen Mm. are contempt, stonewalling, criticizing, and defensiveness. And the two of them that he has said in his work are the most destructive are contempt and stonewalling. So contempt is sort of having a almost like passive aggressive sort of deep hate for the other person where you kind of don't validate any of their experience whatsoever and are constantly just kind of telling them that that they are wrong. It's it's a little bit different than criticizing Mm -hmm. as criticizing is kind of poking at someone else, whereas contempt is almost like you just don't even care. Like you just don't even care enough to criticize Mm -hmm. because you think they're that worthless. And stonewalling Mm -hmm. is just shutting down. So someone wants to talk about something, you decide you're not talking about it. Mm. And, and this is different than I need some, some time to sit and think about this. I need to go for a walk and calm down. It's just, I'm going to shut down and we're not doing this. Also very passive aggressive. Yeah, yeah. Also very passive aggressive and often leads to the other person uh, approaching more and trying harder to get that person to pay attention. And then when both people are doing the stonewalling, these are people that are, that are not talking for a week. They're like, oh, we got in a fight. We haven't spoken in a week. What? And then criticism, I think, is a little bit more clear of what that looks like. And then defensiveness is just never being able to hear the other person because you're so focused on defending yourself. And all of these are ways that people are trying to protect themselves. But some of them are just worse for the relationship overall. I see those, you know, th- those like horrible patterns in the people that I work with. And often I am curious, or I should say we do a lot of discovery around, let's say there's so much contempt and there's so much stonewalling that's happening. Like the, the couple that you mentioned that's maybe not, haven't spoken to each other for, for a week. What do you think keeps them in that relationship? 
I think because they have genuine, genuine feelings for each other and they don't know how to manage them. I think that the emotions get in the way. And the reason the emotions get in the way is not because emotions are bad, but because they don't know how to manage them. They don't know what to do with the emotions. So they come out in all of these maladaptive ways. So I think that there is real, a lot of times, real emotion there and real care for the other person. And they kind of just can't get out of their own way. So they don't want to leave the relationship because they love the other person, but they just can't stop falling into these dances, into this pattern. I don't think anybody stays in a relationship because they're miserable. They stay in the relationship because there's hope that they're not going to be miserable again. The thing that I watch out for to see how long this is going to, this is going to work is willingness. I come across hope so much more often than, than the willingness part, the willingness to do the work, the willingness to change, the willingness to see the other person in a different way. That willingness is something that I think is, for me, is an indicator. They might have hope that it's going to be different, but it's, they don't realize or maybe they don't realize or they don't want to take responsibility to actually manifest the difference that they that they want in their relationship. And it's this, you know, it's almost bordering on magical thinking hope. That this hope that it is it is just going to change rather than no 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 no. You are you are the people who make up the relationship. Like the only thing that will change is you and your willingness to change it. I think that's kind of what I see a lot. Like that's the distinction that I see in my in my practice. I think that willingness plays a huge, huge role. And, you know, both of the people in the relationship have to be willing to make changes. To break a pattern, it usually takes the two people working together to change some of the things that they're doing. Can we talk about one of those patterns when people show up differently? to an argument. And so I'm thinking super personally right now about my relationships and my relationship with my partner. And I am the type of person that when there is conflict, I want to discuss it right now. I want to get into it. I want to discuss the emotion of it. I want to do so honestly, vulnerably. I want to hug and And come close to each other. Right. All of this now. They want to not talk about it at all, ever, if possible, but they finally will. But they need lots of time, certainly need lots of space, need like space, like physical space, but also space in the conversation, Mm -hmm. space to like slow it down. And that has been part of the conflict that we've had that oftentimes we end up fighting about the way we are fighting as opposed to the actual thing, because some hurt will take place and she will go off in one room and I will be there stirring in my own emotions and like waiting to, to, to resolve it. And finally, at some point, as much as I can tolerate, like waiting, giving her space, I'll kind of go in and be like, now, <laughs> can, we talk about yeah. can we do it now? And then finally she'll get to a place where we can talk about it, but she's almost doing it emotionless and she'll apologize, but it's a very like rational apology as opposed to a heartfelt apology. And I'm like, can you, can you tell it like you mean it? And like, and the amount of times we've had that conversation is exhausting. And so I'm interested around how that plays out conflict styles and the way we show up to conflict. Yeah, I mean, so that sounds like a pretty classic sort of approach avoid mm-hmm. to me. So you, so you approach, you're ready to go in there, mm-hmm. and she wants to avoid it. Mm-hmm. And then the more that she wants to avoid it, the more that you want to approach. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you are engaging in some distress tolerance in the other room, walking in circles, mm-hmm. like waiting until you think you can go out there to where she is not going to want to avoid it anymore. And you're going to be able to talk about it. Yeah. One of the things that comes up with this a lot is the person that's avoiding, you know, the other person wants to be like, tell me what you're feeling. Just tell me what the fuck you're feeling. Mm -hmm. What is it? Just tell me what your fucking emotion is. (laughs) And uh, the reality is the other person probably doesn't know. Like if you are someone that is in touch with your emotions, it can be really difficult to recognize and accept that the other person may not be hiding it from you they may actually just not know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that is something that comes up in therapy. It's like, okay, what emotion were you having? You're not sure? Okay, what were you feeling in your body? Yeah. When you feel that way in your body, like what thoughts are coming up for you? Okay, mm-hmm. when are other times that you have sort of had similar thoughts and felt similar things? What emotion do you think you were feeling then? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, and you, yeah. you talk about like, okay, these are the, the six or seven primary emotions. Do any of these 
sound like that? Like if you were feeling, if you were feeling shy, what would that look like? If you were feeling fearful, how would you kind of experience that? Happy, mm-hmm. anger, sadness, you know, all so you start to sort of provide a little bit of psycho ed so that they can begin to recognize what it is that they're feeling and experiencing and then learning how to share that with you. Yeah. Because some people just don't have those skills. But if you're someone that does have those skills, you probably look at the other person like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you not telling me? I care about you. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. And then the other other person is experiencing that as an attack. Oh, Oh, Thomas, have you been in my house? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. It's true. Because we've had that that dialogue. I mean, I think we're in a much better place now, but we, in the past, we've had that dialogue. And she has said, very like pushed into a corner where I'm essentially like emotionally beating her up. Tell me the thing. Why aren't you telling me? What are Mm. your feelings? I love you. Why won't you tell me the thing? And she's just like, you need to step away from me right now. Like I'm feeling Mm. really claustrophobic with all these questions. And so I think over the years, it's helped me to understand those things so that I now need to self-soothe. I need to not expect that I'm going to get healing from them. Like I've learned how to do my own stuff, but there were years of conflict with both my daughter and my partner, my wife, where I was that person yelling at them, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, let me hug you. Why won't you let me hug you? (laughs) Yeah. And it comes from a place of wanting to help the other person, but it doesn't end up doing that. And Someone that I that I work with, um, one of the owners of the practice, recently said to me, and I'm, I'm, it's probably not his quote. I'm not sure where he got it from, um, but that uh, when it comes to interactions with other people, you get zero points for being correct, and you get all of the points for being helpful. Mm-hmm. So as much as you're probably going into it being like, I just want you to share your emotion with me. I just want you to tell me what's going on. Please tell me what's going on. I can hear it. We can do this together. You can trust me. This is safe. She's like, get the fuck away from me. Like you might be right, but that is not helpful for what I'm experiencing right now because I'm experiencing panic and I am feeling attacked and I love you too, but I'm afraid the relationship is going to end. And that's what this conflict means to me. And Get out of my face. Yeah. And when I peel back the layers, you're 100% right. And and honestly, I am much more manipulative than that. It really feels like it's about them, but it's not about them. I am scared and need to be comforted. I need to know that you're not thinking about leaving me. I need to know that you're not thinking something bad about me. I need to hug. I need a hug because I I want physical touch and love. And so it is disguised. I've become very good at disguising it to be like, it's about you and I want to be here for you. And I'm creating space for you. But honestly, it's my own panic of like, oh no, someone's mad at me. Make it stop. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that that's exactly what goes on with the partner that's approaching and the other one that's that's avoiding or distancing is that the more they distance, the more the person's like, I have to have them, I have to want them. I I, I need that, I need that reassurance. I need you to to be there for me. Yeah. I need to hear I love you. I need like I need it, I need it now, I need it now, I need it now. And then you're going to engage in whatever it is that you think you need to engage in that's going to move you closer to getting that reinforcer. Yeah. And for you, that might be, I'm going to make you think it's all about you because I really <laughs> want that reinforcer and I think I can get it this way. Mm-hmm. You know, for folks who are finding themselves in that pattern, Thomas, like what are some things that people can do in the midst of this? So they hear this and, they, and they're and resonating with, with some of the stories that you've shared, what, what we're talking about, and they get into a fight about the dishes. And then what? Like, are there things that people can do to stop the pattern or to sit in their feeling or, you know, what can we do to, to, to do something differently? I think that one of the things that people can begin with doing is identifying their emotion. If you are feeling anger or defensiveness or frustration, that is not your primary emotion. Anger can be a primary emotion if someone has objectively done something harmful to you. If someone walks up to you and punches you in the face, it makes sense that your response would be anger. If someone has not done the dishes, that's not an objective response to say, oh, I'm angry. So what's going on there is there is an emotion below that. And there are, depending on what list you look at, five to seven primary emotions. But happiness, sadness, joy, surprise, shame, fear... 
But, and then, you know, along that spectrum, so along with sadness, like depression is on one end of that spectrum. Like elation is on another end of the spectrum of happiness. So if you need to, if you're feeling anger or frustration and something hasn't objectively been done, which can be a difficult thing to notice when you are, are feeling an increased emotion or intense emotion, ask yourself what it, what's actually going on here. If the person didn't do the dishes, why is that upsetting to me? Do I interpret that as they don't care about me? Do I interpret that as they don't care about helping me? Is it that I interpret that as they think that my time is not as valuable? You know, all of those things could be true to what you're thinking. And your response to that is like, well, I'm going to defend myself and make sure that they know that my time is valuable and that they need to do what I ask them to do or else. But really what you're feeling is probably some sense of sadness. Mm -hmm. And I think that the first step is recognizing that. And then potentially you want to share that with your partner. You know, you didn't do this thing and it's upsetting to me. And like, when you don't do the dishes, when we've talked about how you were going to, it makes me think that you don't respect my time or that you think I'll just do it anyway, or, you know, that you take me for granted. And that makes me feel sad. Mm-hmm. That can be a very, I mean, that is a much more vulnerable thing to say than why didn't you fucking do the dishes? Mm-hmm. Just do the dishes when I tell you to, which is, you know, going to lead the other person to become more defensive. But I think that how the person responds to you saying that makes me sad gives you a lot of data that you need to know about that person. Mm-hmm. If that, if you say that to someone and they still say like, it's only the dishes get over it. That's good information to have. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you don't need to be in that relationship, which can also be a scary thing to recognize. But when I'm speaking with couples or individuals who are having relationship issues, I always try to approach it from this perspective of that's good data to have. Mm. It might not be comfortable, but probably good that you know that. So there are limitations to sort of what you're able to do as an individual in a relationship. Because even if you're working on breaking a pattern, yes, a pattern can be broken with one thing being changed. However, when it's a relationship and you want to break a dance or break a pattern, like both people need to be kind of in it together. And I think that it would be really difficult to make big changes to a relationship without help of a couple's therapist. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, though, there is uh, oh, what is it? The books that are like oh, for dummies. So there's an emotionally focused couples therapy book for dummies mm-hmm. that is like three or four hundred pages. It has all these different exercises in it. I think it's like thirty or forty bucks. It's very, very, very helpful. And I think that couples could get that together, kind of work through it together, talk about some things. And if both of them are willing, as you were saying, Effie, I think that they could see some progress in using that because you know, couples therapy is expensive. It takes time. But I think that there, you know, there are some avenues there where it could be potentially helpful. I love that we're giving people options because like you said, couples therapy or or professional support can be expensive. And I think if people are willing to work on their relationship with the help of a workbook, I think that is like shows commitment. I think there's like, there's definitely hope and willingness there. And I love that kind of resources available for people to just like do the work themselves, which I think is important because not everybody can afford professional to help with their relationship for sure. And I think also knowing that this is not, I think often, and, and, and Thomas, we've talked to you about this in the, in the episode that we did about therapy, is that we often have talk therapy in our mind as the model for therapy. And we know people can be in therapy for years and years, and you go deep back and talk about your relationship with your parents and you, your plans for the future. And with this type of therapy and, and cognitive behavioral therapy and others, there is a goal and you're trying to move through that goal. And the plan is not actually to be doing this for two or three years. And so I share that to say that it is a financial commitment and there, it, it's it's time relative. And so potentially that's something also to consider. You know, I, I've, I've been pretty open about the fact that my relationship, my working relationship with Effie began because she was our relationship coach. And so there was a financial commitment engaging Effie in that process and we did that for a few months and we received the healing that we needed to and and the did the work and the exercises and we were able to carry that on on our own and so if that's something that that folks can consider that having a thought partner and a guide through this journey and someone else who can pause people in the middle of their pattern and reflect on some things and help them see different things that it is worth the investment 
Yeah. And, and a common question that I get with couples in the beginning when, when just doing like a general intake is how long do you think this is going to take? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. How, how much effort do you want to put in? Exactly. Like if you only talk exactly. about your relationship for the one hour a week that you come to therapy, yes. then like it's probably going to take a while. But if you, you know, work on it every day in different ways, like you're probably going to see some changes quickly. It's, it's like training for a marathon, working out at the gym. You go to the gym once a week, it's going to take you a lot longer to, to reach whatever goal you have than if you, you do a little bit every day. The other thing that I think comes up a lot in, in couples therapy are these issues around trust. And couples are always like, okay, what do we need to do to rebuild trust? How can we rebuild trust? We want to work on trust. It, it like comes up over and over again. And I think that trust is one of those things that's a little bit tricky that uh, takes a lot of time to build. And the way that I generally work with couples on rebuilding trust is getting them to connect more with their emotions and sharing their emotions as they're experiencing them. Because the way that trust sort of gets built over time, like we can't go back and make anything not happen that has happened. But what you can do is begin to communicate more. And in that communication, talk about the the things that maybe led to it, but also like the things that you're feeling that you perceive to be positive emotions versus the things that you're feeling to be negative emotions and sharing those things that you are afraid of as well. Because that's really what builds the trust is not that like, oh, I believe this person is never going to make a mistake again, but rather I believe that if this person makes a mistake again, they're going to tell me. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, like like people want this security of like that they think that trust means they're never going to cheat on me again. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or trust means that they're not they're never going to hurt me again. And no amount of therapy is going to be able to provide you with that reassurance or that prediction. No no amount of therapy is going to be able to control what someone ultimately does. What builds the trust is knowing that they will talk to you about it or that they will come to you when they are feeling a certain way. Totally. When the topic of trust comes up, first of all, I remind people that trust is a leap of faith, that there is no, there are no guarantees. It is a leap of faith. And the analogy that I use is that famous scene from the Indiana Jones movie where they have to choose to step onto an invisible bridge. They know, they figured it out in the puzzle that there is a bridge and they have to just step onto it. And that's the, really the only way they're going to get to the other side. And they have to leap, take that leap of faith and just step onto this invisible bridge. And I find that trust is very similar to that experience. I think you just take a leap of faith. There is nothing anybody can do to make you trust them. You just decide that it is time for whatever reason. You know, that depends on your experience, how you feel about them, how you feel about yourself, all those things. You take a leap of faith. And that's just what trust is. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you trusting us today with your time yes. and energy. Before we let you go, actually, we have the four rapid fire questions that we're going to ask you. And I think we asked you these four questions last time you joined, but maybe the answers have evolved since then. And so yeah. we will share these questions with you and see, and see what your thoughts. So the first question is, what is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self about love, sex, or relationships? Don't hold on to it so tight. Don't be so focused on what you want something to be or what you think something needs to be. Try to be true to who you are. Try to just let let things go. Just sort of try to be present in the moment that you're in and just don't try to hold on to it too tight. I think I did that a lot when I was younger probably strangled some relationships to death because I wanted them to work so badly that I squeezed the fucking life out of them. Yeah. I hear yeah. you. Even after a first date. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. Do you remember the, the cartoon character Almira from Looney Tunes? And she just like, yes, loves of you so course. Much. Tiny <laughs> Tunes. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. That's what made me told you. That's funny. That's funny. Okay. Next one. Uh, what is one romantic or sexual adventure on your bucket list? Romantic or sexual adventure? God. So romantic adventure, I would say I really want to go to the Maldives. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be sort of a romantic adventure. Uh, a sexual adventure? Maybe have more threesomes? Mm-hmm. Maybe? I, nice. I, you know, I, mm-hmm. the relationship that I'm uh, currently in, we are monogamous. 
and we've been together for over seven years and uh, love him very much. And I, you know, there are moments where I wonder about like, I don't know, what would it be like to have other sexual partners? And I think that in my own journey like i'd be fine with myself doing it but he's not allowed to and, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> and i think that that is probably the thing that has that's my kind of non-monogamy thomas i like that's it. our jackie yeah. roll yeah. in, our, in our monogamy <laughs> that's my <brand>. yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think for some couples that could work. Some couples are, you know, totally satisfied with that. And I don't, I mean, whether it's fair or not, I don't think it really matters as much as just like, are both people okay with that? Mm-hmm. And just knowing myself well enough as I do, I don't know if I would be okay with him experiencing other other people. So what about experiencing people uh, together? Which would be the threesome Oh, yeah. Oh, no, the threesomes are with two other people. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, I think, uh, I mean, I think that's, it's something that we have talked about. It is something that we have not taken the leap in doing. It was something that we were kind of considering a little bit more seriously before COVID. Yeah. So that has been a hindrance in the process, perhaps. I get that. I get that. Um, how do you challenge the status quo in your, in your work and in your life? How do you challenge the status quo? I think that I encourage people a lot with not only the sort of the status quo that maybe the world or society would have, but also the status quo that they have for themselves. And in noticing and recognizing what are the things that you're doing because it's sort of the default that you've always done versus an actual decision that you're doing. So I think that, or or a decision that you're making. So I think that on a very micro level, I sort of look at it that way. Love that. You know, it's fine for you to do what you're doing. Not telling you you have to change what you're doing, but let's just, let's see if we can make it not the default. Love that. So good. Let, let's see if, you know, you can, you can still engage in that behavior, but let's, let's just notice what it is. Let's have it something you're purposely doing, which, you know, the vast majority of the time then has them be like, fuck, I should be doing this other thing and I'm going mm-hmm. to do this other mm-hmm. thing. But I think that that first part is just like, I don't, I don't want you to change anything. And that's sort of the approach that I take with therapy to begin with is I'm like, I'm not asking you to change anything. I'm just asking you to notice, mm-hmm. just asking you to be aware. But then once people become more aware of things, they're like, oh, I got to I got to change that. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Love it. I love, 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 love that. love that approach. Last but certainly not least, what are you curious about recently? I am. <laughs> I am extremely excited about the new Resident Evil video game that's coming out in the beginning of May. Nice. I love it. <laughs> so good. Yeah, it's Resident Evil 8 Village. And uh, I love horror video games. I love them. I love like super gruesome, gory, <laughs> nice, <laughs> horrifying uh, video games. I think they're so much fun. And it is one of the... I, I'm doing a lot of therapy with patients right now and playing video games between studying and reading and just all this other stuff is one of those yeah. ways that I really just enjoy to relax. And I enjoy, I enjoy the feeling of fear. Mm. I enjoy being scared, love going to scary movies, uh, you know, haunted hayrides and haunted houses, all that stuff. Just love it. So great. (laughs) Thank you, Beautiful. Thank you, Thomas. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was one of those conversations where the advice shared seemed basic and honestly even obvious, but it also felt really transformative. Specifically, I think there were two things that I walked away with. Number one, I should be identifying my primary emotions that are driving my reactions and communicate those emotions. So instead of focusing on my frustration or my anger or my disappointment, which likely is going to prompt my partner to shut down or feel defensive, it's actually more valuable and honest to share my sadness or the fear that is actually prompting my frustration and my anger and my disappointment. Mm -hmm. And I've actually used this twice since our interview with him. And it was much better than starting the conversation (laughs) from an angry, disappointed, energetic place. Mm -hmm. 
So that was lesson number one. Lesson number two was, and again, I should know this, but understand that the dishes are never about the dishes. Mm -hmm. And if there is a conflict pattern that we should be discussing that when we are both not in a triggered or upset place, when we are in a calm Mm -hmm. place, as opposed to my preferred style, which is Mm -hmm. talking about everything the moment that I am feeling it. I got the talk about the pattern part before. I think the piece that was a good reminder is don't talk about the pattern and address how we always have this argument in the middle of that argument. (laughs) Absolutely. Wait until we're calm and then be like, hey, Mm. I noticed that there's this always talking happening. And I think that's because of this because I'm afraid of that. So not like shocking anything that he shared and yet important reminders. Of course. It makes me think of the difference between easy and simple. Sometimes Mm. things that are easy aren't simple and things Mm. that are simple aren't easy. We think that the two things are the same. It really, Mm -hmm. this sort of what comes up for me, what, what he's saying isn't groundbreaking never heard of it. Like trying to difficult, you know, finding it hard to wrap your head around. You're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that totally makes sense, but it's not easy to execute the stuff as things are transpiring right there in front of you and you're right in it. So I think mm-hmm. I think what I hear from you is really, really fair. It's like, I get all this, but it's still really hard. Yeah. Yes. Totally. Yes. Yes. And I think that, I mean, I, it's good to have these reminders because then it, it does feel more top of mind. I find mm-hmm. myself, you know, you slip into old patterns. I've had... Mm-hmm. 30 plus years of one way and and a little under a decade of trying something different. And so it's going to take me some time. Of course, of course. I mean, as a part of, I mean, the emotionally focused therapy modality is something that I'm familiar with because um, I lean on it a lot in my coaching um, because this stuff comes up a lot when people are exploring non-monogamy. Because as I said before on the show, when you're exploring non-monogamy, in fact, when you're going through any major change, this goes with things like having kids or major life changes, like moving to a new place or like a new town or a new city or whatever. I specialize in non-monogamy, so that's where I tend to meet people at. This kind of change turns on stadium-sized spotlights onto the relationship. And what was once sort of dimly lit is now bright and all the insecurities are getting activated. Things that were like lying dormant was never getting touched. It was like nicely, like, you know, like swept under the carpet or like left in the dark corners are suddenly there and you're seeing all the stains on the couch Everything is, you know, there's like mm-hmm. lumps on the on the carpet from all the things that you just like put under there. And of course, all the insecurities are getting ignited and activated. So it is in those times that you revert back to your original coping mechanisms. This is where, you know, it becomes hard to, you know, the things that you just said, get regulated. Like think about your emotions, mm-hmm. get, you know, like talk to your partner without getting defensive or all those things. So when you're like trying to do non-monogamy, all this stuff gets um, Mm -hmm. activated. So I lean a lot on the principles of EFT. Also, I find that this methodology really, really works where there is a pull-push dynamic in the relationship. Um, The dynamic that you wonderfully talk about as the octopus and the turtle dynamic. Mm -hmm. That (laughs) when one person is kind of pursuing and the other person is shutting down and often that state kind of oscillates, when that happens, EFT is a really good type of therapy for that, for sure. Yeah. We talk about that too, right? That it'll be uh, same argument, different people. Mm-hmm. That That's actually one of the benefits of being non-monogamous is when Absolutely. you realize like, oh, this pattern is not just a pattern in this relationship. Right. <laughs> like I keep finding myself in this and that is absolutely the case where the mm-hmm. person who I'm sitting across is clearly shut down. And I am just like the octopus with all of my yeah. tentacles trying to be like, talk to me, feel <laughs> with me. And they're just like in their shell, completely gone. Um, totally. And I realize honestly in some of the the in our conversation with Thomas that part of what what shuts them down is my um and he talks about coming from a place of power that it's much mm-hmm. it's much easier when you're angry and mm-hmm. you feel self-righteous to come from that place than the place of fear and 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 sadness or shame or any of those more vulnerable emotions and so when i came at folks with like and you this and that then of yeah. course they shut down and i was like why are you shut down mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to now you know since this conversation it's reminded me to really to, to lean into 
the fear and the the other emotions that are triggering my response. Yeah. As a defense mechanism, I think we both intellectualize and would definitely step into, I mean, how about I don't speak for you? I can speak for myself, but I definitely (laughs) step into that. Let me understand the situation. So like when Mm -hmm. you said like, feel with me, I'm the person that's like, let me understand. And then often the other person is like, no, you have to feel this. I'm like, hmm, let's just think about the origins of of emotions in our nervous system. And the person's like, what the fuck? (laughs) That's kind of like... That's kind of mm-hmm. where I end up as a defense mechanism if I'm not careful. So mm-hmm. like you said, knowing this stuff doesn't help you when you are activated and triggered and you're trying to, you're trying to kind of navigate those waters from that place for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also find this method is super useful in helping people develop what I call emotional literacy. Mm. I find that um, at the beginning of relationships, we tend to talk about how we feel about each other. It's often smitten, you know, emotions and about how hopeful we are and how much we love the other person, how much they mean to us, right? Often that's kind of the the feelings that we're talking about. Over a long-term relationship, we tend to transition into more about the doing, the things that need to be done and life happens and a lot of sort of execution around that. Or if things aren't going well, we are talking about all the things, you know, the the troubling emotions and the, the things that the other person is doing poorly. Mm-hmm. There really isn't a habit of narrating our emotions in an articulate kind of way, right? And without it being like needed to address anything. It's just kind of a, an ongoing narration of how we're feeling mm-hmm. in a way that the other person can understand and really kind of just have insight into what's going on with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's almost as if, to your point, we're only j- digging into these things when we feel amazing and wonderful and those mm-hmm. emotions have taken over or when we are furious or heartbroken and those emotions are taking over. And what I hear you saying is that it's important for us to be able to build up our emotional literacy in the language that we're using to describe how we feel outside of those emotionally hijacked spaces. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think also capturing the nuances of our feelings as well. So there's this exercise that I give pretty much to all my clients, which is um, I give them an option. I either show them an emotion wheel Dear listeners, if you just Google emotion wheel, you will see pages and pages of this stuff. It is a, essentially, it's a progression of emotions from a core emotions of six or eight emotions, which Thomas talked about in the, in the interview as well. And then from there, it kind of opens up uh, with each consecutive circle opening up. That's giving you more of a nuanced description or more of a nuanced state of that one emotion. So from, from like fear, you get in, you get all the way to petrified, right? Which is, which mm. is a, um, which is like a progression of an, a nuanced description progression of that emotion so that's like for people who it really depends how you think for some people this emotion wheel was really helpful it's also colorful and kind of fun um and the other option i give them is the non-violent communication feelings and needs list you can also get that anywhere online just google that you'll get it it's freely available it's a great list and i tell them to print this not on your phone put one copy in the bathroom and one copy in a common space, on the fridge, on the coffee table, something that's in a common space. And what I suggest, what I invite them to do is the one in the bathroom is essentially for reflection. Bathroom time is kind of like chilled, isolated time when you are actually feeling kind of calm, just how our neurology works. And it's a really good time to like look at a list of emotions, words. This is like the emotional literacy, but like the literal words of it is really helpful because we need to be able to name things. And reflect on those words and think of when was the last time I felt that way? If you never felt that way, can you imagine what it would feel like to feel that way, right? So you're working on two muscles. One, you're working on the actual literacy to be able to give names, be as precise as possible to your emotional states. And two, you're kind of working on that empathy muscle, right? You're kind of going, okay, so I've never felt this, right? I've never felt exuberant, right? <laughs> Let's say, but I can imagine, can I, like, can I, can I imagine what if, what if it feels like to be exuberant, right? Often we can, we can get there because you're kind of doing an exercise from a calm place, right? So mm-hmm. that is just like, 
emotional literacy gym doing that exercise in the bathroom. That's so interesting to me. I've never thought about having kind of printed wall reading material in the bathroom. And just also, I'm like amused by the idea of having a guest over and they're using the restroom and then now they just see all these emotional words everywhere. And then, <laughs> and the Great. dinner conversations the follow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then the other sheet having in the commonplace is your cheat sheet, right? Mm. That is for when you are in a heated argument and you can't remember any of your homework. You can't remember any of your <laughs> words. And then you're like, I know I need to find words. I just don't, I just can't get to them. They're, not, they're like a part of my brain that is like my frontal cortex where reasoning lives and I'm, I'm activated and that is now offline. I just have a sense in my body that I need to put name on things, right? I need to put name to feelings because often we are there. In that place, you just pull out your cheat sheet, coffee table, fridge, and literally go through them word by word and say, I feel this. I feel this. I feel this. Do I feel this? I don't know. I don't think so. It's more this. In the beginning, it feels really mechanical. It's like you're doing wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. You're like, okay, I'm sitting here reading a vocabulary list. And then I'm like, oh, I'm, we're supposed to be having a fluid argument. And now I'm pulling out cheat sheets and like reading words. But that is how you ultimately develop emotional literacy by doing that stuff and then mm-hmm. after a while it will become you'll, you'll internalize it will become a part of your communication tool set and you'll be able to just pull them out and be able to narrate your experiences without it being any kind of escalation any mm-hmm. kind of you know trying to mark a moment it'll just become a narration of how you're feeling and and in addition so once you get to that place The next place, which I think you actually do a really good job with your daughter, which is to really get down to a specific feelings, which are often a combination feelings, right? Mm. It's like anxiety with a tinge of (laughs) giddiness, right? Or like, it's like, it's like anger with a side dish of shame, right? Mm -hmm. So you get really, really specific and then you give them names. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Even as you describe that first one, my daughter will, will often say that she feels excited, anxious. Mm. So that's like looking forward to something, but that looking forward to it is just so like big in her body that it's actually creating anxiety. Yeah. Or she's talked about embarrassment or shame after she has realized that she's done something to hurt someone else and now needs to come back and apologize and the mm. complexity of those emotions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we've put little names on them. The same is true actually in, in my relationship with uh, with my partner that, that we try to create code words for things mm-hmm. that sometimes feel hard to say, but mm-hmm. that has that same meaning. Yeah, I love that strategy. Yeah, I I think, again, this is just building a toolkit for emotional literacy and then, you know, starting with the basics and then getting to a place that is nuanced. And often what you're doing at that stage when you are really identifying the cocktail of emotions, you are recognizing patterns, right? Mm Because they're very specific when you get to the specific feelings and you can be so descriptive. Now you're going, oh, here are my patterns. It starts like this, these things happen, and then I'm triggered Mm -hmm. into this very specific picture of an emotion or a cocktail of emotion and once you're able to connect those dots then you can start to make choices because you can now catch things earlier you can now have words for it so you can go through it and to the other side easier so it's why it's why it's really worth doing all this work yeah, it was good. and that's what I was just thinking. It's like, wh- why? <laughs> In my what? mind, I'm like, why do this? Why are we? Why are there sheets and printouts and 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 this vocabulary, or emotional literacy? And I agree with you. I also think that that there's something about you know, if you go to the doctor and you say my leg hurts, treat me. That may not be enough information, right? Is it a rash? Is it a fracture? Is it a break? Mm-hmm. Is it a cut? Is it a get? Like, depending on what actually it is, will prescribe whatever medication you need, whatever surgery Mm -hmm. you need, whatever happens next. And I think the same is true in relationships. So I can think about very specific examples where I may be feeling some hurt or be feeling um, rejection around sex and may at some point muster up the courage to have that conversation with my partner and say, you know, we haven't been sexually intimate in a while. And and her response may be like, all right, well, you know, let's, let's just do it. Let's have sex right now. And I'm like, well, no, I don't want to have sex right, right now. <laughs> and, and for, right. And if you're thinking about that, you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. You said you're, you're mad that we're not having sex. Well, let's just have some sex. I'm like, but it's not about that. Right. <laughs> or how many times right. where it's like, right, you haven't done the dishes and you're like, okay, well I'll do the dishes, but it's not about the, it's not about <laughs> that. 
And so it's the same thing. It's like, if you go to the doctor, you're like, my head, my, my leg hurts. You're like, well, you fix it. But it's not about, it's not about that. Well, then what mm-hmm. is it about? The, mm-hmm. These exercises about drilling down and down and down where mm-hmm. it's not, I'm not just angry or hurt. Like I feel resentful. Okay. Well, why do I feel resentful? Okay. Cause we've had this conversation before and then I, I feel like you're not listening. So now I don't feel heard. Mm-hmm. Well, if I don't feel heard then I don't, I don't feel respected. And, and being able to peel those layers actually then creates the environment for you to address and heal the, the thing that is the core issue mm-hmm. as opposed to all these other symptoms without actually understanding what the problem is. Exactly, exactly. And going back to the question that it says, why? Because it's just how you have a healthy, thriving relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, I think doing this kind of homework and getting this kind of drills done saves you actually so much more time over the course of your relationship, so many more arguments, so much more heartache. And eventually, I think getting it right with your partner or your partners heals you, mm. right? Because we know that these wounds come from childhood. We know that these wounds come from not being heard or seen or kept safe from your primary caregivers. It just happens, right? It doesn't have to be like hardcore abuse. It could just be parents who were misinformed, ill-informed, didn't have support themselves. All the reasons that aren't like evil people, you know? And by getting to a place that you are able, you are able to articulate your emotions and seeing somebody and experiencing somebody, seeing and hearing you and meeting you where you're at, over time will heal those wounds. Yeah. And even if you're listening to this and you're saying, I, I don't know about all that. I don't know about my childhood and how that impacts now. I don't know about if you just want to make your argument shorter, shorter, if you just <laughs> want to time. Get, yeah. Like, like really, if you don't even, if you want to skip all that part, okay, I'm with you. If you just want to not piss the person off more or not be more mm-hmm. pissed off in the midst of it, just try these things. Try exactly. starting with, I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling hurt right now versus I'm really pissed off. Just right. try, just try that today. Just try right. that. <laughs> try go, Google emotion wheel or NVC, a nonviolent communication feelings and needs list and try using one or two of those words this week. Just try it mm-hmm. and let's see what happens. And totally. see what's better. Totally. Keep and use what works. Dismiss the rest. Absolutely. So interesting conversation. Really enjoy Thomas. Really enjoyed kind of going back to the basics, which I think we need to do every now and then. And just remember, use our words. Mm-hmm. That was <laughs> no my wife's <laughs> password for a long time. Yes, use, use your, your words. words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, use your words. Get Be in touch with your feelings. Recognize when there are some patterns. Address those patterns and those feelings when you're not in an angry and triggered place reach out for help, either coaching or therapy if you need it. Try some things on your own, like real basic stuff. And for many of us, the reminder that we needed to hear. If you're interested in learning more about Thomas, you can follow him on social media at T. Whitfield PhD. You can visit his website, madisonparkpsych.com slash Thomas-Whitfield-PhD. And you can check out his podcast, The Obsessibles, wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're doing all that, while you're searching things, while you're looking things up, come and follow us. We are Curious Foxes on Facebook and on Instagram. We do many cool things. We just did a giveaway for a bunch of cool play toys and prizes. We are highlighting the amazing work of Effie Blue on the Red Table Talk. Recently sharing with Willow and Jada Pinkett Smith. And that was very cool. If you want to see all of that, then you can go to Instagram and Facebook and you can find all that information there. And if you have liked what you heard, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, we have one request. Please just like it or send a review or share this podcast with somebody. That really does make a difference. It makes a difference in the algorithm. It makes a difference to the numbers and it makes a difference to us because we are in an effort to hashtag change the noise and we need your support in order to do that. And we want to hear from you. If you have questions that you'd like us to explore on the show, then give us a call. We may play your question on air. We may incorporate it into some of the planning for future episodes. And we just love to hear from you. So you can do that two different ways. One is you can give us a call at 201-870-0063, or you can send us a voice memo or an email at listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com. This episode is produced and edited by Nina Pollock, who only evokes beautiful emotions in us.
Our intro music is composed by Dave Saha. We are so grateful for their work. And we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Stay curious.